the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the doubters, the believers, and everyone in between. And uh, I don't know if this is going to be relevant to today's episode, but we have had some, I, I, I guess... Is it an amazing... Yeah, it is an amazing comment. We keep talking about jots, just one of those things, which are basically synchronicities in the world that seem hard to explain. And in fact, I heard a comment today when uh, it was somebody I was talking to and they said synchronicities are just something that you, uh, you can explain away unless you know the levers and pulleys that are going on behind the scenes. And I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it. And That's a really nice way of putting it. Uh, we got a message from a listener, Tony Lovell. Hi, Tony. Thank you for sharing this with us. He shared a number of stories, but one of the things that he talked about was when we we were we were discussing in uh, in an episode the the um, I guess the synchronicities you get with animals, and at the time that we had mentioned jackdaws. He says that he came into his house and found that his son had brought a jackdaw fledgling with an injured wing into the uh-huh. house. Uh-huh. And just as we had mentioned a jackdaw fledgling, and I do remember that story. It was because, I, well, I had um, been at a barbecue and a baby jackdaw was trying to befriend us. And we, we had all sort of decided like we didn't quite know what to do and then i looked at some advice and it was like do not befriend it because um, otherwise it won't learn how to um, behave in the wild well i don't know if it was that or the other one because you if you remember i had that thing where i had a jackdaw fledgling in the back garden and we put it in a box and took, oh, took yes. it to a place called Tiddywinkles near here and when i came home there was another fledgling not a jackdaw that's so right. You're right. Yes. I'm not sure if Tony is picking up on your jackdaw jot or my jackdaw jot, but either way, it's kind of bizarre, right? It is kind of bizarre. And I think we can all agree that jackdaws are incredible birds with an intelligence that I don't think we fully understand. But it was really good of you to sh- share that, Tony. And you've got a yeah, number thanks, of other Tony. stories uh, about dogs and things, and we will pick up on those later. But, um, genuinely thanks for sharing that does that in any way gel with what you're bringing to the show this week pete well weirdly uh it totally gels with what i'm bringing to the show this week another synchronicity another synchronicity i mean as you said me and you are both well we're a little bit obsessed with premonitions coincidences and jots so I, uh, well, unlike Ben, who can read and condense a book in a number of hours, it does take me a little bit longer. <laughs> and I have been reading a book for the last couple of months. And it, I, I can thoroughly recommend it to anyone out there. It's an amazing book by the author Sam Knight. And it's called The Premonitions Bureau, A True Story. So I want to talk about that book today and the weird coincidences that I have personally had while I've been reading it because I've had a number of jots at varying levels of jotdom scale. I don't know if there is a jotdom scale, but I think we should create one, don't you think? I I think so. And for anyone that hasn't heard that episode, because jots comes from a very specific book, 
but it stands for just one of those things. And it means, uh, or it refers to, incidents which are, they seem like coincidences, but they are far too close to weirdness to be just coincidences. But a lot of people write them off. So uh, lots of those things are sort of, you, you know, for example... You lose a necklace and then 10 years later, that necklace is draped across a footpath that you've never walked on before. Something yeah. something weird like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll come on to the jots that I had while I was reading this book uh, later. Um, but let's talk about the book itself. So the Premonitions Bureau. Basically, this book follows the story of two men. John Barker, who was a psychiatrist and a very keen member of Britain's Society for Psychical Research, and a guy called Peter Fairley, who in 1966 was the science editor for the London-based newspaper The Evening Standard. Now, these two men, Barker and Fairley, with the help of The Evening Standard, created something which became known as the Premonitions Bureau. And basically, it, it reminded me a bit of some of the stuff that Ruth Roper Wild's been doing, actually, Ben. Because basically, what they created was a database of people's premonitions so they could monitor and assess them for accuracy. And their aim was to investigate whether premonitions were a real phenomena and whether they could, in some way, create a kind of, I guess, an early warning system to prevent disasters from happening. That was their kind of ultimate goal. Okay, so it's a very altruistic way that they set out on this mission. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's the impression that I got. Um, And I'll come on to what the Bureau itself uh, in a minute, but I wanted to start with the events in the book that kick-started the whole thing off for them. And what it was was a disaster that struck the small coal mining town of Aberfan in Wales on the 21st of October 1966. Now, certainly, this is one uh, of the most tragic disasters in modern British history. Many of you will be familiar with it. Um, Some of you may also know it. It featured in the Netflix series of The Crown. They did an episode of it because of the Queen going down there and visiting and all the involvement. So some of you may have seen it then. And to explain what happened on that day, um, we need to look at coal mining practices at the time. So as part of coal mining process, waste material that could not be used as coal, like sludge, dust, rock, etc., would be piled up in these huge mountains. I guess they're, they're like a waste pile from the mining process, if you like. Now, in Abba Fan's case, this pile was laid on a large hill, I don't know if you've ever seen these, Ben, but these things are not small. I guess they're the height of a medium-sized apartment block, something like that. I mean, they do look mountainous. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them. Um, You can still see traces of them if you go to places that were rich in mining, like, for for example, North Wales. You You can still see them. Some of them have been turned into, like, nature return areas and things like that. But the ones that haven't, they're quite... Um, they're quite imposing because of their size yeah. and and also like they they seem obviously unnatural yeah indeed indeed well on the 21st of october 1966 after periods of heavy rain this mountain of waste in Aberfan collapsed and 
this avalanche, basically, of waste descended onto the town below. Um, 144 people were killed. The shocking fact is 116 of that 144 that were killed were children aged between 7 and 10, mostly. And they were killed as the avalanche engulfed their school. So the whole thing collapsed and engulfed the whole of their school, tragically. Now, after this incident, thousands of people descended on the small town to try and help with the trying to dig people out with the clean-up process, bring supplies to the community. And among them was the psychiatrist I mentioned earlier, John Barker, who believed that his skill could help he could help with some uh, dealing with what the grieving families were going through. Now, this early section of the book details a number of strange premonitions and coincidences that Barker observed while he was in Aberfan. I mean, there's things such as uh, people and children who have never overslept before but did on that day. There's a, a, an interesting story about a school bus that was running late due to fog, so narrowly avoided being caught in the avalanche. And it was pretty much on time most of the time. So there was these little things. But I'm just going to pick out two stories that are just incredibly emotional and a bit harrowing, but they really stuck out for me. And this was when Barker was helping some of the bereaved families. So one of them was weeks after the accident, the mother of an eight-year-old boy named Paul Davies showed Barker a drawing her son had made the night before he died at the school. The picture showed the dark hillside with many figures digging at the bottom of it and he had written the words on the picture, The End. Hmm. So this is the night before the disaster which he was swept up in the following day. But he'd drawn... The hillside, he'd drawn people digging and written the end. Extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Barker also heard the story of Errol Meyer Jones, a 10-year-old girl, not given to imagination, who had told her mother, Megan, two weeks before the collapse, that she was not afraid of death. Why do you talk of dying and so young, her mother replied. Then, according to a statement written by Glanet Jones, a local minister, and signed by Errol Meyer's parents and later published by Barker, the day before the disaster, she had said to her mother, Mummy, let me tell you about my dream last night. Her mother answered, Darling, I've got no time. Tell me again later. The child replied, No, Mummy, you must listen. I dreamt I went to school and there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. Yeah, when I when I read that, oh, the hairs on the back of my neck just went up. Yeah, and that that feels more than more than coincidence. Yeah, no, that's that's proper premonition, isn't it? Right, right. So there are other tales around Aberfan in the book, so definitely worth having a read of those. But those two really were were tragic and really stuck out for me. Now, for the psychiatrist Barker, his experience in Aberfan and what he regarded as the genuine premonitions that had happened there led him to get in contact with the science editor of the Evening Standard, Peter Fairley. Now, Fairley was a believer in premonitions. As a science editor, he pursued a number of stories based purely on gut instinct, 
which had led him to a number of scoops. And actually, these included, this is amazing, he predicted the USSR's first manned spaceflight two days before it happened. Now, you would think he might have had inside information, but he didn't. He literally had a hunch and started investigating the story. He thought that a man would go into space, dug around, found he was right, and got the scoop of the Russia launching the first man into space. Hmm. So the relationship between these two men started by Barker persuading Fairley to run an appeal in the Evening Standard under the heading, Did Anyone Have a Genuine Premonition Before the Coal Tip Fell? In the book it says there's 60 plausible premonitions were received. 22 of them were described before the incident. Now, I'm not sure how they checked those out or confirmed them, but they're the numbers they got to this first appeal. And off the back of that appeal... Barker and Fairley devised the idea of the Premonitions Bureau and they approached the editor of the Evening Standard, the newspaper, about it. Their idea was they'd ask readers for their premonitions. People could either use a phone number or write a letter, obviously no internet in those days. The premonitions would be filed and assessed over the year uh, and the plan was to launch the initiative in the first week of 1967. I'm going, to cut to, I'm going to cut to the chase a little bit here, Ben. During the time the Bureau was running, from 1967 into the 1970s, 97% of the predictions didn't come true. Okay. And I think statistically, I mean, you know, you could the ones you could argue the 3% that did could be luck. So you would think this would be the end of the story, right? And this would be the end of this episode. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it just I and and maybe it isn't covered, but out of those 97%, were they just very vague so it's very hard to um give attribution to them or were they very specific and simply didn't happen or is it a mix? I think it's a real mix, but it's a good point and we'll come on to some of them. What those statistics that I just given you the 97% unsuccessful rate doesn't take into account is two people. One person called Lorna Middleton and another called Alan Hencher, whose hit rate at predicting future disasters was extraordinary. Neither of them were professional psychics or mediums. Lorna Middleton was a music and ballet teacher and Alan Hencher worked in a telephone exchange. Both come to the attention of the Premonitions Bureau where they responded to the original appeal for those who'd predicted the Aberfan disaster. Alan Hencher recalled, It just hit me without warning. I began to tremble all over the body, felt lethargic and found it very difficult to concentrate on my work. I did mention to a lady sitting next to me at her inquiry as to whether I was feeling ill. I said that a big disaster was taking place in this country that could cost many lives. I couldn't and have never been able to pinpoint the place of occurrence. The lady has looked at me in a very worried fashion since... And it seems has been avoiding being near me. So he had that in that example, he didn't have much detail, but as the event was happening, he had these weird bodily sensations that just hit mm. him, and he, he just thought a disaster was happening at that point. Mm. Now, Miss Middleton, who had had a number of premonitions throughout her life, woke after a restless night's sleep. A couple of hours before the Aberfan disaster at 6 a.m., she had a powerful feeling of foreboding. She said, 
I awoke choking and gasping and with a sense of the walls caving in. And she immediately told a friend of hers who later confirmed that her story was genuine. So again, not much detail there. I guess you could argue she's kind of having some of the symptoms that were going on for people or would would happen for people in the disaster. Yeah, um, but but it's also difficult to bring up actual details, right? Because if it's something that is coming and we get this, you know, we, we know this from people who say that they're channeling spirits or whatever, uh, it tends to be an emotional thing that is... Uh, is communicated rather than a very specific i would have been surprised if they had said you know oh at 8 42 this thing happens it doesn't tend to be like that no no although we'll come on to some in a minute which <laughs> do have that kind of quality in abundance of what you're talking about okay what's interesting i mean miss middleton from the book it seems to me was the star and she had had paranormal experiences from an early age um when she was seven years old she came home from school and watched her mother frying an egg she says after about two minutes and without warning the egg lifted itself up it rose up and up until it almost touched the ceiling (laughs) which just what i like about it's such a weird thing to have a paranormal experience about right that's so weird yeah her mother became so concerned about her child's abilities to predict the future that she asked her daughter to stop saying what was about to happen next so she basically said i don't want to hear any more of these premonitions because the young miss middleton was kind of coming up with this stuff all the time there's a great story as well of her in 1941 during the blitz of london Middleton and a friend were due to go out dancing at a local night spot called Prince's. While making their way there, Middleton described having a strange sensation and convinced her friend to head back home where they played cards instead. At 8.45 that night, a German bomber was hit by anti-aircraft fire and jettisoned its payload of bombs. The venue that the girls were due to be at at the time, Prince's, was hit by a number of the bombs and reduced to rubble. What is amazing about that story, again, this is coming from Miss Middleton and people around her, but she was so excited to go to this club and her friend didn't want to go and she convinced her friend to go and then halfway there, Miss Middleton was like, we've got to go back. I don't know why, but we can't go. Yeah, yeah, no, I I guess if I'm going to bring the the sceptical element into this, there would presumably have been a number of people who didn't want to go and were persuaded by their friends and then died. So, yeah, this... uh, I completely understand where you're coming from and this is extraordinary that that happens, but I would guess that there were arguments to the contrary. Yeah, and I think... Well, I think this is where it comes down to the statistics again and it's almost like the hit rate of some people um, versus somebody who maybe has a one-off premonition, which we will come on to that. So let's look at Miss Middleton's work, or predictions at least, for the Premonitions Bureau. So she first, uh, after the Abba Fan thing, she first contacted them in March of 1967. Uh, she 
kept contacting them on multiple occasions about danger and an accident at sea. And a few days later, an oil tanker called the Torrey Canyon ran aground between the Scilly Isles and Cornwall, causing Britain's worst oil spill. On the 10th of April, she wrote to Barker warning of tornadoes or hurricanes on the west coast of the US. 11 days later, there was an outbreak of more than 40 tornadoes across five states, which killed 30 people in Chicago, so a coastal town. This next one is quite extraordinary. On the 23rd of April 1967, she sent in a vision of an astronaut on his way to the moon. This venture will end in tragedy, she wrote, and included a drawing of an astronaut crouched in a spherical craft. At the same, at the same time she posted this premonition, a Soviet cosmonaut was in orbit around the Earth in his Soyuz 1 spacecraft. Now, I have to say, it is possible that Miss Middleton could have known there was someone up in space, but it's very unlikely as the mission had not really been widely publicised in the West. Uh, in the book, it details there was a Swiss radio station who'd reported it, but that was the only place that it had been reported at the time. So, yeah, sure, she could have had her radio tuned in and knew that there was somebody up in space, but we'll go with it. Uh, the guy, uh, the the cosmonaut was called Komarov and he was encountering multiple failures on his craft and at one point it got so serious that they actually got Yuri Gagarin in to talk to Komarov on the radio to try and give him words of encouragement to hang in there because whole, the whole ship was just going crazy. After re-entering Earth's atmosphere, the parachutes on Komarov's craft failed and the Soyuz-1 hit the ground at high velocity in southern Russia. Komarov was burnt to death. He was the first person to die during a space flight. Which I think is important because even if she'd have known that there was a space, uh, there was an astronaut or a cosmonaut up in space, that the fact it would end in tragedy, this was the first time that it did. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. This next one gets even more detailed. Uh, this blows me away, this one. On the 1st of November that year, Middleton sent in another premonition. I'm going to use her exact words because mm. it's amazing. She says, I saw a streak of light, then a flash of light, and a sort of grey mist. I was trying to find out where it was. The words train kept coming through. Train, train. I see a crash, maybe on a railway. A station may be involved. People waiting in the station and the words Charing Cross. And then the sound of a crash. Five days later, a train left Hastings on England's south coast heading for Charing Cross Station in London. The train came off the rails at 70 miles an hour, a few miles away from its final destination of Charing Cross. 49 people died. Okay, that's much more specific. So she actually predicted the location, which I just think is incredible. And and in these, these stories, uh, is there any... Uh, like attribution for where this knowledge is coming from is this simply put down to this person being able to for you know 
I guess what we're saying is see into the future. Or is yeah, there a spirit I, element in this? No, not 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 the ones that I've read. She okay. um, almost, for her, from the stuff I read, she almost didn't want to have these premonitions or these powers. She didn't know okay. where they came from. She right. just knew she had this ability to sense these things. And I think, I mean, what's interesting is the stories I'm telling you, this is within a time frame of a year, right? <laughs> these premonitions. Mm. Mm. Um, that it's almost, it feels a bit like when you read the book where she was given a focus of doing things for the Premonitions Bureau. It's almost ramped up the visions for her and what she started to see. Um, now earlier, so that that, Train crash, I think the amount of detail on it is incredible. Now, earlier I mentioned a guy called Alan Hensher, and I'll come on to some of his premonitions in a moment. But he also had a vision of the same incident, which is incredible as well. This was an hour after the accident happened, before any news had got out. He complained of a severe headache and wrote a note saying he thought there had been a rail accident that had just happened. So he had no knowledge of it at the time, but it, he started feeling physical symptoms of headaches and stuff, which he always did when he had his visions. And he saw the same train crash that Miss Middleton had predicted as well. Okay, yeah, that's that's very compelling. Very compelling. There's also quite a weird jot about that train crash. A weird coincidence. Was one of the surviving passengers was a 17-year-old called Robin Gibb from the Bee Gees mm. who went on to co-write the band's first hit single, New York Mining Disaster, which actually has got nothing to do with any kind of disaster in New York, but was actually inspired by the mining disaster in Aberfan. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but, and of course, um, Robin is buried... Like, less than a mile from my house. Yeah. But that's quite amazing that she had predict she had kind of, if you believe it, she had predicted what was going to happen in Aberfan. She predicted this rail crash, which Robin Gibb was on, who then went on to write a song inspired by the Aberfan incident, which is really... I didn't know that until I read this book, because obviously no. it's called New York. No, Mining I had disaster. no idea. No, and they were, it's no. not based on any. There was no New York mining disaster at all. I guess they kind of felt it suited the message they were trying to get across. But yeah. yeah. So a few days after Christmas in 1967, Miss Middleton reported a premonition of an unusual collision involving a truck carrying an exceptionally heavy load. Seven days later, a truck carrying a 120-tonne electrical transformer was hit by an express train in Staffordshire. 11 people were killed. On the 11th of March, 1968, Miss Middleton wrote to Barker warning of an assassination. Four days later, she sent another message saying this vision was not going away and that it might be connected with Robert Kennedy. Later that month, she told an American journalist that two men were not safe, Charles de Gaulle and Bobby Kennedy. She repeated these warnings about Bobby Kennedy throughout April. On the 4th of June 1968, Middleton was frantic. She called the Premonition Bureau three times that day, warning that Kennedy's assassination was imminent. 
Bobby, Bobby Kennedy was shot in the head shortly after midnight, less than 48 hours later, on the 6th of June at the Ambassador Hotel. <sighs> That's so tragic because obviously there's nothing that they can do about it when they hear that. Yeah, yeah. And I'll come on to that because I think that that was the, some of the frustrations that I think the Bureau had, this idea of a kind of pre-warning system of disasters. There's a lot of problems with that. <laughs> yeah. Working, you know. Yeah, because you're going to get... It must be like working in the police and you will get 99 people say, oh, I know where this body that you're looking for is buried and it turns out to be nothing. Yeah. And that dilutes the knowledge of the one person that has has actual evidence or well or actual knowledge of where yeah. that where that body is buried. You, I mean, if 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 you called the Secret Service and said we think there's going to be an assassination, they would they would just presume you were mad. Yeah, and I, yeah, I agree. It's, it reminds me a bit of like. I think the police, when they do those public appeals, they, they're always a mixed blessing for them because they know they're going to get so much material right. that is going to be irrelevant. Right. I th- you know, I mean, on the Bobby Kennedy side, he was a pretty high-risk target. So I think a sceptic might argue predicting his death is not particularly um, special, let's say, for want of a better word. What I think is really interesting about that story is... The fact that 48 hours before she was so frantic, she called the Bureau three times that day saying you need to do something about it. She had this belief and was, you know, it's it, it's almost like over the month or so period she was predicting mm. it, when it got really close, she mm. became more frantic and disturbed by the fact mm. that she was having this vision, which I think is interesting. It is interesting, and, and and I guess like the thing that I'm most interested in is, and and this doesn't, I I don't want to dwell on this, but it comes down to um, quite often when we we talk about these things, we get onto the subject of like the the nature of reality, and if she isn't attributing these things to a spirit or um, something like that, what I what I go to and I always go to and I do apologize to everybody who thinks that this is crazy but I go to a simulated reality and and a code leak because how could you know if it isn't if it isn't a a spirit uh who is existing in a different time frame to us then if you're just getting these thoughts how and why do they happen? It, yeah. It, it, it really, every, all of the time you're talking about these things, I, I am dwelling on what is the nature of reality then? How is this happening? Yeah, and that, uh, the book doesn't go for your theory. There is quite a lot in the book about um, time and time being non-linear and, you know, there's there's lots of, uh, talk of Freud and Jung and other scientists and other theorists who, you know, that, that time is kind of all, either predetermined or laid out and somehow they're tapping into this. 
or you know it's not as it's not linear in the way that we think it so she is predicting things that haven't happened from our perspective but probably have already happened in the oneness of the universe if that makes sense yeah that does make sense yeah Let's have a little look at um, one of the other, let's say, star performers of the Premonitions Bureau, a guy called Alan Hencher. Um, I don't think he's quite got the detail or hit rate that Miss Middleton had, because I just think, you know, just the more I read her stories, it was like extraordinary in the the, uh, amount of space of time that she had them. Um, I'll, I'll just pick up a couple of his... Uh, he Hensher was responsible for the Bureau's first major prediction. So at 6am on the 21st of March 1967, Hensher called to predict a plane crash. He had a vision of a Carvelli, a French passenger jet. He said, it is coming over mountains. It's going to radio, it's in trouble. Then it will cut out and there'll be nothing. He said there would be 123 or 124 people on board and one person would survive in a very poor condition. He also said, while I'm talking to you, I have a vision of Christ. He saw a pair of statues and lots of flashing lights. On the 20th of April, a turboprop passenger aircraft carrying 130 people attempted to land in Cyprus during a thunderstorm. It clipped a wing on the side of a hill rolled over, broke into pieces and caught fire. This bit's interesting. The Evening Standard reported the next day that 124 people had died. That's that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, you know, if that's, that's either an incredible coincidence or he predicted the number and, and pretty much the, the, the way that the plane would crash. What's interesting about Hensher is that he claimed his precognitive abilities began after he suffered a head injury in a car crash in 1949. So he never had them before that, but he was involved in a car crash. Uh, And they said that's when they started, after he had this head injury. He would also strongly feel physical symptoms while having his premonitions, such as severe headaches. And actually, as time went on, they became quite debilitating for him. They were real physical reaction when he was having a, a premonition. Um, on the 1st of May, Hensher telephoned Barker with a prediction of another plane crash. So this is not very long after the first one. So the 20th of April was his first one. And then on the 1st of May, he telephoned to say there's going to be another plane crash. But he was really unsure because he thought what he was seeing might be an echo from his previous prediction, which I think is quite interesting. But he felt it was a new prediction. The plane has sweeping tail fins, he said. Henscher said the crash would happen in the next three weeks, that more than 60 people would die, but there would be some miraculous escapes. A few weeks later, a British Midland Argonaut plane crashed into the town of Stockport, a few miles from Manchester Airport. 72 people died. There were 12 survivors, including the pilot who was badly injured. Now, the miraculous bit is interesting. The pilot had miraculously managed to steer the plane away from a residential area, crashing into industrial wasteland. The death toll would have been considerably higher if he had not done this. So the book states that in the following months, photographs of the Stockport 
plane crash would convince Barker and Hench that Hencher had foreseen that crash. Uh, there's a whole bit about the tail fin and the way it looks because he said, is this kind of elongated tail fin, which the plane has. Um, Barker wrote to his journalist partner, Fairley, stating, what if Hencher is right again, but how can we stop it? If we could, then Mr. Hencher would not be warned of this possible terrible tragedy in the way he was. And for me, we talked a little bit about it earlier. This highlights some of the difficulties the Premonitions Bureau was having. Both the psychiatrist Barker and his and the journalist Fairley had seen, as we mentioned earlier, this bureau is potentially an early warning system to prevent disasters. Mm. But as you've heard from them, even Miss Middleton's and Hench's predictions, most of them are quite vague in terms of exact dates and locations. Yes, yes. So what do you do with it, right? And and like you you pointed out, um, even when she did give more detail, as in the case of the Kennedy assassination. Who's going to believe them, right? And acts on it. Yes, of course, because there would be a hundred other people that would say not the same thing, but they would say similar things, and they'd be wrong. So, yeah, it's you, you, it's the boy that cried wolf syndrome. And, and even I was thinking on the Charing Cross one, where she had actually named the location. Would British Rail have really cancelled? All trains to Charing Cross Station on the words of a psychic for for no. how long? For weeks? For days? No. For, not at all, right? No, not at all, no. Um, so you, I think that Barker and Fairley got a bit frustrated by that, that, you know, this idea of an early warning system, it's like, well, how the hell is that going to work? They also had problems with the star performers. Middleton and Hensher were getting frustrated the process of making these predictions was causing them mental and, in Hench's case, physical distress. Yeah. They also questioned what they were getting out of it. They didn't seem to be preventing disasters. They were just putting in the predictions. Um, both Barker and Fairley seemed to be building successful careers, partly off the back of their predictions. The newspaper was getting great copy and sales, but Middleton and Hencher weren't even getting paid. So... And they weren't professional psychics, so it's not like they're building a business doing this. Um, and there's an interesting bit of the book where um, Farley, the journalist, had almost kind of moved on from the project and was doing other things. And when Barker said, look, kind of Middleton and Hencher say they want to leave and they want to write a book about their experiences, Farley was like, yeah, let's just get rid of them, just fire them. You know, and Barker was kind of like, well, hold on, these guys are the ones who are doing all the predictions. We need to kind of hold fire a little bit and see where this goes. So I thought I, that's a really interesting bit of the book, the kind of pressures on the people who are making the predictions and these two guys who are running it over time, their kind of motivations were slightly changing and nobody was quite getting what they wanted out of this Premonitions Bureau experience, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, well, it, it's, I guess one could feel like it's a curse because the psychological impact of knowing that you are right but not being able to get anyone to change a course of action, that would induce an enormous amount of stress. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I thought it was amazing that they actually considered Middleton and Hensher leaving the project because in the first year of the Premonitions Bureau, 
18 accurate predictions were logged. And there's, there's a scale of how they assessed how accurate they were. So I think it's on the level of some of the ones that I've talked about today. Mm. Out of those 18 accurate predictions, Middleton and Hensher were responsible for 12. <sighs> wow. That's, I mean, that's well, a lot. That, I just think that's stunning that, you know, that's a stunning hit rate of... Okay, so we've said 97% that they got were inaccurate of general predictions. But of the ones that were, 12 of them came from two people, which has to tell you something, right? Right. But from those two people, how is it recorded how many inaccurate uh, predictions they that, made? That Just those very, two people. That's a very good point. Not, not something that's covered in the book, but that is a very good point. But uh, the, well, the, the one thing I thought is the amount that they especially uh, Miss Middleton was doing within a year, I don't know if she could have done much more. So even if you count, even if she'd have doubled up, that's still a hell of amount of predictions to be doing in that space of time, right? We're talking about a year and a half, basically. Yeah, 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 completely, completely. But it, it must... Like, I think the devil is in that detail of, you know, if they're predicting those things, which... You know, absolutely. Obviously, they proved that there was, you know, there was there was something there, and and they were right. Did they? I, I think it would be interesting to know. Like, did they sort of say, you know, oh, there'll be a pile up with a school bus on the M twenty five, and that didn't come to fruition yeah, because yeah. that sort yeah. of denigrates this uh, this hypothesis in a way. Yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't go into what their hit rate was compared to the amount of predictions that they've made, as far as I can remember reading the book. I don't remember coming across that. Um, there's a lot in the book I haven't covered. I've just picked two, uh, the two main people who were doing predictions, but there were other quite um, remarkable predictions that came true as well, or allegedly came true. Um and there's also some amazing stuff in the book about Barker's work in mental health reform. So there's a whole thing about uh, how mental health was changing in the 60s or people were trying to change it. And there's some shocking insight into the treatment of people suffering from mental illness at the time. Um, but we, before we move on to my weird experiences while reading this book, I just wanted to highlight a kind of interesting subnote. So during his time as a psychiatrist, Barker worked with patients who suffered from Munchausen syndrome. So this is a condition where you believe you have a or multiple medical conditions that you don't actually have. There is also a, a version called Munchausen by proxy where you kind of you give uh, a th- a, a, another party or at least treat them as if they're ill. But the, the original Munchausen syndrome is somebody believing that they have an illness or a disease that they don't have. What's interesting about people who suffer, some people who suffer from Munchausen is they can actually manifest the exact symptoms of the illness that they don't have. Um, and interestingly, Barker wrote a book which brought together his passion for psychiatry and, para- and the paranormal called Scared to Death. Now, I'm oversimplifying what the book's about, but the basic concept is that he's believed that by believing in something, whether it's that we have an illness or being haunted by the paranormal, we can almost manifest illness, injury or death. 
Um, and there is some science to back that up. Ben, have you heard of the nocebo effect? Uh, I think that effect is something that contributes to non i guess non-scientifically proven medical techniques which do appear to have positive outcomes so i would suggest that so uh i have had uh, uh i've had acupuncture there is no scientific evidence that acupuncture is you know, there's there's no evidence yeah. as to how it works but we know it does well, work and and I did feel better for having it well that isn't actually the nocebo effect that's the placebo effect ah okay i'm sorry right so you're right the placebo effect is when you're told say you're taking a painkiller but you're actually taking sugar but the pain goes away so kind of what you're saying there with the acupuncture you start to believe that this thing is doing you good and it manifests in a way that does you good yeah the nocebo effect is almost the opposite of that and there's some really good scientific information in the book where it goes into there's been a number of drug trials where volunteers have been told what the side effects of a medication could be now, the volunteers will often display those side effects even among the control group who are just taking sugar tablets. Okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So it's, it, the, the nocebo is almost the opposite of the placebo effect. I got and what's, in, what's interesting, that during the life of the Premonitions Bureau, both Miss Middleton and Hensher warned Barker about his possible imminent death on multiple occasions. Now, you might, as you might expect, that caused Barker quite a degree of paranoia. You've got these people with this amazing yeah, hit rate saying you're going to yeah. die. I, I mean, it was literally like, I think there was one in which Hensher says, are you planning to fly anywhere soon? And he said, yeah, I'm flying to New York tomorrow. And he was like, I wouldn't get on that plane. Oh, my God. Barker became paranoid, as you would, mm. uh, with somebody predicting you're going to die. But there was almost this combination of there is Barker, who'd spent a lot of his life as a psychiatrist, looking at and studying people who were suffering from Munchausen syndrome. There was um, his kind of paranoia that came about generally that these people had these abilities that he believed could predict the future and then at least two of them were saying he was going to die and he did die not shortly afterwards he died on the 20th of august 1968 aged 44 like hensher he had been suffering from severe headaches and it's likely he died of a brain hemorrhage though it was never properly ascertained the morning before he died miss middleton woke up with a choking sensation that she immediately phoned the bureau and reported so although the book doesn't explicitly make the connection there is a tantalizing thought that barker's obsession with those suffering from munchausen syndrome his written works in the book scared to death 
and the multiple warnings about his imminent demise from psychics in the Premonitions Bureau may have in some ways brought about or at least hastened his own death, which is a, a chilling and interesting theory. It's, it's incredibly chilling, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, like I said, there's a lot more in the book itself. But I, I wanted to move on to my experience of reading it and some of the coincidences I had while reading the book. I'm going to run through these in the order that they happened. So, j- just before you do, like we have said on a number of occasions and this isn't a idea that's unique to us this is something that i've picked up from other people but the more you look into the paranormal the more it looks back at you and yes. i think we've both experienced this but i think you much more than i yeah weirdly and i've been trying to rationalize that in my mind and i was talking to a friend of mine about it the other day who said Ah, uh, surely it's it's almost paradoilia that you are looking for something, right? <laughs> and it, you know that I I could have read War and Peace and God, oh my God, there are just these amazing coincidences while I've been reading it. The fact that I was reading a book about premonitions and coincidences, and I had a number of coincidences. I don't know. So I, there's a bit of me that likes to dismiss it that way, and there's a bit of me that. Mm almost <laughs> in Barker-like paranoia, goes, yeah, but maybe it is looking at me. Mm, um, mm. Well, let's go through and see what you think. Some of these were kind of more coincidences than others. So it really started at the start of the book when they're talking about the Abafan disaster. Now, my grandfather was a miner in Wales, and I didn't realise until I started reading the book... I I mean, I never met my grandfather, but um, he worked in a coal mine a couple of miles away from Aberfan. Right. So it's very likely at some point he would have been down that mine, which is quite a weird thing to think about. And I remember as a young kid, probably about seven, I guess, going to visit family in that area. And I remember being almost obsessed with those huge black mounds that we talked about, the one that came down on the Aberfan town and school. I remember Mm. looking at them as a kid going, those things are just huge and ominous and there was something otherworldly about them is the only way I can describe it. So Mm. it started a bit, I mean, that's not the biggest coincidence in the world, but... It started me going, oh, God, my, so my grandfather probably was down that mine. And I remember, brought back that childhood memory. And then I was working on a, another project, which is nothing to do with the paranormal, nothing to do with the podcast. Uh, and as part of that, I had to develop a, a kind of research model for the project. And I based it on the Big Bang Theory, among other things. Um. And I'd written this sentence uh, about a day before I was reading a certain bit of the book. The sentence I wrote was, words and thoughts gravitate together and clump into groups. This was the sentence I wrote for the research model I was putting together. Mm. 
the next day I read this quote in the book, the uh, Premonitions Bureau, and it's uh, and the book talks about an author called Arthur Coyster. And I read this sentence. Coyster remained haunted by the meaning of coincidences, particularly by odd events that seemed to cluster together. When major and minor calamities crowd together in a short span of time, they seem to express a symbolic warning as if some mute power were tagging, tugging at your sleeve. And so I put things clumping together and my thought of the model was random thoughts that you had would come together and sense would be made out of it. The next day I read this whole chapter in the book that is basically about that. So, <laughs> and on that very same day, I was at a meeting. Again, nothing to do with the paranormal or this book, something else that I was working on. And the place I had the meeting, all the rooms were named after famous philosophers or people in psychotherapy and various other so psychotherapists philosophers and other great writers and cultural figures Mm. and i had one meeting in this room and then i had an hour to kill in between i thought oh i've got my kindle i'll read the book i'll read the premonitions bureau so i'm reading the book and there's a whole section on freud and jung about who two famous psychiatrists or once two of the leading psychiatrists, I guess, and psychotherapists and writers. And the Premonitions Bureau talks about how Freud and Jung had different beliefs, but they had some kind of belief in premonition and how it might work. So I'm reading this, and then it struck me the room I was sitting in was called Jung, <laughs> and it was <laughs> named after the young that I'm reading about in the book. I literally opened the door and just checked. It was like, God, I'm reading about this guy and I'm in a room that's got no connection with the paranormal or the book, but it's named after him. Okay, yeah, that's pretty weird. That is pretty weird. And then... For another part of the work I was doing, again, separate to the paranormal or the podcast, um, I wrote a piece about my relationship with time, how I feel it was non-linear. Then, the next day, I read a chapter in the book that describes the concept I had written about the day before. (laughs) The chapter talks about someone called Herbert Saltmarsh from the Society for Psychical Research. Uh... Barker cited Saltmarsh when he drew a distinction between our conscious experience of time and what is the strict demarcations between the past, present and future and a more porous experience available to our unconsciousness. So again, I'd written similar things for a project nothing to do with this the day before. (laughs) That is so weird. That is so weird. It is... I don't know if it's looking at you, but it's certainly reflecting. Now, whether it was influencing me to write this, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It could be working the other way yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It was, it, it was like, it, it, if it was, it was subtle, because these were the first time these concepts came up in the Premonitions Bureau the day after I'd written about them. 
Uh, on page 99, there is a line in the Premonitions Bureau uh, where it says, Dunn was consoled by advances in quantum mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. not a huge one, but it did make me chuckle. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. There was a whole chapter on the concept of premonitions within community groups on the west coast of Scotland and the Western Isles. I'm heading up there for three weeks in a couple of weeks, which is quite weird. Oh, this one slightly freaked me out. This is the last one. So I thought there can't be any more weird coincidence in this book because I'm getting to the end now. And I mentioned earlier that Miss Middleton had made numerous predictions that Barker was going to die, right? Yeah. The first vision she had of Barker dying, and it writes the date (laughs) next to it, was on the exact day I was born. (laughs) Okay. Okay, yeah, that's... I think that's quite strong. I mean, there's so many ways of discounting it and... Um, like arguing that that isn't a coincidence, or but 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 it is, it is. Yeah. It, well, it was you know, like I said, there's part of me that just wants to go. Hey, I could have read anything and found these things, but it and maybe the fact that I was reading a book that was about premonitions and the paranormal, I was almost heightened to find these things. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the dates, stuff like that are quite weird. The weirdest bit for me were the concepts that I'd been working on for a completely different project. Yes. And the fact yes, that yes. I was in a room named after the person that I'm reading about was very, very strange. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. I get that. No, that is weird. That is weird. And so everything that you've discussed there and every all of those weird synchronicities i think they are synchronicities rather than coincidences um what does what does that do to your world view because you've been deeply immersed in that book i know for a number of weeks does it make you think that because in in my mind there's there's two ways of looking at one is that there are some people who are tied into spirits and they just won't acknowledge that it's a, a spirit influence. And I don't know what to make of that because I, you know, I, do, I just don't know what to make of that. The other one is that there are people who are connected via a glitch in the matrix into, uh, like, like I said earlier some sort of like simulation or that is just a mathematical anomaly and i'm sure there'll be people who say that who are like yeah yeah but these people say those things but they also said that we would find a triceratops on saturn and we didn't so you can discount that and then there's another one where it's like no no people just have feelings about things and trying to put a model around that is something that we're not able to do because we just don't have the ability to work out what those things mean. It's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, oh, my gran was all-knowing. She would, she had a view that, um, 
you know, I should do this with my life and it all turned out really well. And those sorts of things turn into very much like a mathematical kind of argument because you just kind of go, well, yeah, no, of course, but, um, you, you know, anyone could have said that and it had a decent chance of coming off. And what we don't know is the people who were also told that and it didn't come off. So did it change the way you think about things or did it just make you go, the universe is weirder than we thought? Well, I think the first thing that really hit me, which wasn't about my little jots and coincidences, were I was intrigued that there seemed to be two, for want of a better word, star performers within the Premonitions Bureau. You know, because you kind of go with, it reminded me a bit of when we first started looking into the remote viewing and there's almost this theory of how anyone can do it. Some people might have a natural ability and better at it than others, but anyone can do it. Whereas reading the book made me think, well, no, maybe there are just people who, for some reason, are exceptionally tuned in to something and have these abilities. I mean, I thought it was interesting that um, the guy, Hencher, his premonitions or his ability, if you want to call it that, only really started after he had this bad car accident and suffered a head injury which kind of makes you think wow is that something was something unleashed in his brain that mm. suddenly made him tune into something so in terms of my perception of potentially what's going on I do think there I, it left me thinking and maybe it was because I was doing something else that was working on that as well of this weird connection with time that we are we look at time in terms of you know the earth going around uh, you know the earth going around the sun and that watches and all this kind of stuff whereas it doesn't work like that or it doesn't look like it works like that and einstein would definitely disagree that it works like that um mm. and it also this, this is quite random thoughts but it also reminded me of the excellent tv series the watchmen where there is a character in that who kind of transcends time. And there's, I think it's a quite, I might not get this exactly right, but there's this great quote where he goes, I am everywhere all at once. <laughs> and mm, it's, mm. <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of flashbacks of when he met someone and then he's like, no, I, I, I'm meeting you right now in, you know, like five different time zones. It's all happening at the same time for me because mm, time mm. is not how you think it is. So it well, did that, make me... That- Yeah, that I was going to say that is something that came up in the poltergeist episode that we talked about, which is yeah, yeah, like time and presence are perhaps not as linear as we think. But also, when you were saying that, I was thinking because listeners may may be able to detect my dog is snoring next to me, and we know that animals appear to have a different perception of the paranormal than we do. They they see things apparently that we can't see. And the the common denominator there when you talk about time is that uh well certainly the animals that we live with, our dogs and cats, they don't although they know exactly when their dinner time is, 
they live in the moment they they have a different uh relationship with time that we do so is it possible that what we're seeing there from these people who appear to have a different relationship with time i wonder whether that has a similarity with our pets who have a different relationship with time yeah and it does i mean i know we've talked to we talked to paul h smith and daz smith about remote viewing and saying it becomes harder to look into the future and there seems to be some debate about whether you can or not but it did make me think reading the book that maybe there are only certain people who it is you know time is not linear maybe the future has already happened it's just something we can't perceive and there are just a handful of people who are able on some level to tap into that maybe in a way Mm. and, and from reading the book in a way that they don't even understand right yeah yeah i think yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i think perhaps we lose something as a society when we discount these people because as i said i think it is really unfortunate that there would be i you know generally a lot of people who would say a particular thing and they would not be correct and yet when somebody has a high hit rate because you have to analyze that with mathematical statistics that is impossible so i i am sure that there will be people maybe not even listening to this show but there will be people in existence who have a really good hit rate at for example solving crimes or you know whatever it is but people don't listen to them because they have Mm. been uh influenced by the number of people who got that wrong and you would need a scientific study to prove why that person is more right than others but Mm. yeah it is it is fascinating and and i think every time we talk about these these things and the evidence that you've brought forward it just it makes me it just makes me question like how it all how it all works yeah well there were there were there is also another funny bit in the book and i can't remember if it's barker or fairly who do this but there's a whole bit where one of them at least was obsessed with betting on the horses <laughs> and they would come into the bureau on a morning and see if there'd been any predictions about who was going to like win the 345 at Ascot and stuff and then would go and, and change his betting habits based on the uh, information the bureau had received which I thought was funny there was no detail about whether he was very successful or not at it but I thought it was a funny <laughs> thing so well, it wasn't that all rem- altruistic. <laughs> that reminds me of what you asked Avril about whether yeah, yeah. She, could, well, she could she could predict lottery and and she, and she said no. And yeah. and I completely understand why and why it makes sense that you can't. Um because you know, perhaps there is a a, a fail safe which means that if you do have that ability you, you, it wouldn't make sense for you to be able to influence the future because if people with that ability were able to predict lottery numbers um perhaps it would screw the whole world up but yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. weird that 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 those are fascinating tales absolutely fascinating and i'm gonna have to take them away and have a hot bath and listen back to what you've said and have a think about it but it it 
it's you know I think in the spirit of our podcast where it's you know believers and doubters and everyone in between I think you could take you could take away a lot of different things you can either take away that there were two people who had specific abilities or you can take them away as being mathematical anomalies who just happened mm. to say the right thing at the right time although the evidence suggests that wasn't quite the case because that there's very specific mentions of things are and 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 the timeline i think a, the and the timeline it was under yeah. such a short spirit period of time was just amazing mm. yeah definitely yeah i agree uh, well I agree. it's def- if you if you've not read the book it's definitely worth it i mean i covered a small portion of it today but the book is called the premonitions bureau a true story by a great author called Sam Knight. Um, I, I definitely recommend it. Okay. See if you have you. as many jots as I had. <laughs> yeah. And and I think what would be really interesting is if any of our listeners have had not just a vague um, perception of the future, but something that really has definitely happened. So um I and I've seen this in my own in my own life. I've had and, and I've never attributed anything to it other than, well, that's just human nature. Um, you, you know, I've sort of foreseen things where I would get a job or I wouldn't get a job or, you know, really mundane stuff like where, um, you, you know, my, my, car, my car would fail its MOT because of something that I'd thought about like really ridiculously mundane nonsense but if you've had an experience where it's been very specific and you've been able to give advice and someone has acted on that advice and it's worked I would love to hear about that because yeah, yeah, I because all of this like I think in in the like when you're listening to this we'll have had 120 121 episodes out Every time we make an episode, it changes my thought on what reality is. And if you've had a thought about what reality is and you've been able to do something like that, like predict the future, I'd love I'd love to know about it because it yeah. just all adds to our collective understanding. Probably best to do that on our Facebook page at TQM Podcast because it'll re- you'll really struggle to get it in a tweet. <laughs> ben, yeah, <laughs> that's Ben true. wants you to explain the nature of the universe in a tweet. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna is that hard. too much to ask? Uh, yeah, is that is that it's all he wants from life? All right. Well, uh, I I really enjoyed that book and I do recommend it. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. Like, subscribe, review, follow, tell a friend, all the stuff we tell you to do. It really helps. It does already help. And thank you for bringing those stories. I am now going to go away and have a long think about who I am. Um, (laughs) See you next time on the Quantum Mechanics. See you next time. the quantum mechanics.